Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I'm your host, Gabriel Matthew, or if you're French, Gabriel Mathieu. Today we'll be talking to a Canadian author. He has the lovely name of Claude La Luminière. He was born and raised in Montreal. He has also resided in Quebec City, Vancouver, Portland, and Austin, and is currently headquartered in Ottawa. He's worked and managed bookshops and written reviews and criticism. Since 2002, he's also edited or co-edited 14 anthologies in multiple genres. He's also taught workshops and been a presenter at the Hugo Awards. His first fiction, Bestial Acts, appeared in Interzone in 2002, and he has since published more than 100 stories, His work has been translated into French, Italian, Polish, Spanish, Serbian, Hungarian, and Russian. His work's been adapted for stage, screen, audio, and comics. Claude has taught in Canada, the United States, Serbia, and India, and he's been included in a year's best anthologies of fantasy, erotica, and science fiction. You can find out more about Claude at his website, which is claudepages.info. He's also on Twitter as at CLDLLMR. His Facebook page is Claude Pages. Now I'd like to read you an excerpt of this strange and erotically charged novel. This is, takes place in a bookstore in Canada. Uh, our narrator, or one of the many narrators in a novel, has come into the bookstore and has seen some strange otherworldly people, one of whom is a woman who seems to want to talk to him. I apologize for Petra and Renata, she whispers as he sits. But her tone suggests the opposite. Even at a murmur, her voice is deep and sultry, like a song. She leans in closer towards him. He catches a whiff of her aroma, a subtle spiciness, redolent of salt and cinnamon and burnt butter. She halts in the act of leaning back, as if something has caught her attention, and pushes her face closer to his neck. She sniffs him, which he finds electrifyingly intimate and erotic. I thought so. He mouths more than utters, What? You've just had sex. You reek of it, of love, of your fluids and hers, whoever she is. It strikes Pierre that the woman is speaking neither English or French, the only languages he knows, and yet he understands her every word. Before Pierre can formulate a response, the crowd erupts in applause, the reading is over. 
Some people immediately move to leave the store, but several others line up to buy books and get their copies signed by the assembled authors. While all this activity is going on, the mysterious woman grabs Pierre's hand and leads him deeper into the shop. She's even shorter than he thought, no taller than a tween girl, but there is nothing childlike in her penetrating gaze, her arrogant body language, her sensuous grip, her musky scent. They sit down on the floor, isolated from the bustle by bookshelves. She takes a clear glass flask from her bag and offers it to him. The color of the beverage is burnt orange with hints of red. He twists open a cap. The bouquet reminds him of the woman's own aroma, as if the two originated from the same source. Pierre takes a sip, the liquid is powerfully intoxicating. From the taste and texture, it is clearly wine of some sort, mulled with a peculiar blend of spices, but it spreads through his body like the best whiskey, a comforting warmth that softens the edges of the world. He replaces the cap and hands back the flask. She says, kiss me. There's only the merest hint of a question in her voice. She assumes he's going to do it. Well, so, does he kiss her or doesn't he? He does spend some time with her, and to find out, you'll need to read the book. And uh, here's what I had to say after reading it. Pungently sensual, this novel is a carnal carnival ride, circling around a central conceit. There's a city-state by the name of Venera, a place where an opium-like drug called vermilion grows. Claude La Lumière's work is reminiscent of the French poet Rembrandt, who wrote in his poem L'Armée, What did I draw from the gourd of the wine? Some golden liquor, pale, which causes sweating. So that liquor isn't vermilion, but... To find out what Vermilion is, you'll have to read all the stories. The novel consists of a collection of stories, linked by people's experience of Venera and its inhabitants. The stories are visceral and tense and tinged with melancholy. There are also the fantastical proceedings of a conference about Venera, which obfuscates rather than clarifies the mystery of this island. Does writing describe reality, or is it an ephemeral collection of impressions? Through reading about a series of bewildering and erotically charged encounters, we ourselves are challenged to find out the truth about Venera. Let's welcome Claude to the show and ask him some questions. Let's welcome Claude to the show and ask him some questions. So, Claude, the truth is Claude Le Lumiere really your name? Well, let's put it this way. Since I write in English, I doubt I would have chosen a pen name that many Anglophones cannot pronounce. So, yes, Claude Le Lumiere <laughs> is my name. It's beautiful. Thanks. So, uh, speaking of pronunciation, I also have a little bit of trouble with your recurring character. She is now, correct me if I'm wrong, Shehe Uh I, I would say 
Scheherazade. Okay. I, I so this is a character in the novel. She has supernatural powers and great beauty, though a diminutive stature. And she says that the tales of Venera are all lies and all truth. She herself is the story as well as the teller of tales. How is the reader supposed to take this? Well, I would say that that readers are supposed to take this the same way they take anything. It's really up to them. It's really, it's not up to the writer ever. Where story is created is where the text meets the reader's imagination. So that every new reading is actually a new, a new fiction, a new creation. As for Scheherazade, she's the archetypal storyteller. And she started to show up early in the writing of the book, just as brief asides. And I just rolled with it. And I decided to give her a larger role in the story. Since Venera is explicitly made up of stories, it is even within the context of the book, it's an explicitly fictional place. It made sense that Scheherazade would be the teller of those stories. So she's kind of our uh, introduction to the book because it starts with her. Uh, Venera Dreams is a kaleidoscope of images and sensation, but it's difficult to impose a traditional arc. How do you view the narrative arc of Venera Dreams? Well, I call this book a mosaic. And that's the form that I mostly work in. And by mosaic, what I mean is an assemblage of stories that, when put together, form a greater whole. They all interact with each other. It's not just linked stories. It goes a little deeper than that. The connections are more intricate. And, um, and in that sense, it doesn't have... A traditional arc at all where the story comes together is how the different episodes there are 15 and all how they interact with each other to paint this picture of what venera is and in a way it's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle because there are other ways i could have decided to assemble this book and up till the very end i kind of played with that uh and it it took me a long time to really figure out what order I wanted to present these episodes in and what effect I wanted them to have together. That's exactly the impression I got, that it was a mosaic. And if you stand too close, you'll miss the connections. It's good to kind of back up and just let it come all at you. Right. That's a good way of putting it. So Venera the island is linked mystically to Venera the goddess, and there are several references to women making up 70% of the population. However, Venera isn't the land of cooperation and peace that proponents of a matriarchal society would suggest. It's a savage place. How does Venera reflect your view of the feminine? I'm not sure that it exactly does, but it probably does in some way. I would say that as, as someone like me who's attracted to women, um, part of that attraction, what comes with it is a sense of mystery, 
of allure, of seduction. And all of that involves risk and danger. Uh, real love, real sex is savage. And Venera is a place where things are, are uninhibited, uh, where things um, are not constrained by the usual social mores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems like somewhat of a French view, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, yes, speaking about the risk-taking in Venera Dreams, people often drift in and out of sexually ignited relationships. It's unclear what part love plays, though there is often great longing are you a believer in the popular romantic concept of love? Well, yes and no. I would say if you're talking about true love and those kinds of concepts, I would say no. But if you're talking about if I believe that love and romantic love in particular is the thing that I yearn for the most in life, that is true. And, uh, I, and uh, I'm, I'm in a long-term relationship now, uh, my, my fourth long-term relationship. Um, we've, been, we've, we've been together for nearly seven years now. And um, that feeling of romance is something that I try to keep alive all the time. And, I, and it's certainly the group. Uh, one of the great things that drives me in life. Mm -hmm. But I don't, at the same time that I'm a romantic, I don't romanticize the romantic if that doesn't seem like a contradiction. Like, I'm also a little pragmatic about it. I'm also, like, I don't see it in any kind of mystical or spiritual or, or, any, or anything like that. For me, it's something that's profoundly animal. I think I understand what you mean, because in the States, now that we're talking about cultural perceptions, or I guess mm -hmm. I brought that up, there's, right. a, there's sometimes, on one hand, there's a very transactional view of relationships where uh, perhaps the mate brings a certain social prestige to the situation. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's very a very sentimental view of love where there's this one true love and you get starstruck and that's it for the rest of your life. Well, well I mean, the, the thing is, I don't, I don't sentimentalize, sentimentalize things, but um, I do believe in love at first sight. Like I, I believe that we perceive many things subconsciously that we like in terms of body language and odor and pheromones and all kinds of, of small, of small, small details that don't jump out at us in a conscious manner. But we, if we're open to all that information and we trust our gut, I think um, often our first impressions will be quite accurate. Yeah. For instance, their smell like the salty, tangy smell that one couple in your book experience that's a right. big draw mm -hmm. yes absolutely yes so in the conventional narrative we have a hero or heroine looking for something maybe they're looking for that sentimental love or <laughs> meaning 
Redemption, forgiveness, honor, maybe even just revenge like a Clint Eastwood movie. But your characters appear to have very different motivations. What does drive your characters? Well, in the introduction to my first book, uh, James Morrow wrote that in conventional mainstream fiction, uh, what we usually have are, are character-driven stories. In traditional genre fiction, we have plot-driven stories. And he said that I inhabit kind of a third. Mm -hmm. That What I do is that my stories are drive-driven, that I go straight to the drive, and that, my, and that my stories and even my characters are all about what drives them. And I think what drives them is you, uh, in the previous question, you, you mentioned longing. I mm -hmm. would say instead yearning. I think that my characters are all yearning for something. Um, and for sure, the, the traditional things of redemption, forgiveness, honor, or revenge, no, that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, and I think my, what my characters are, well, my characters are all of it quite different maybe at the heart of a lot of them though is they're all trying to find a place to belong yes. and that might be their and that might be the biggest motivation that my characters have they're trying to find a place to belong i felt that too that they were looking for connection right this, this is actually not one of my prepared interview questions but uh you and i have both apparently moved around quite a bit and have several cultural influences right. in our upbringing. So uh, do you suppose that your own upbringing has uh, brought you that yearning? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, there, there, there is no question. Okay. Yeah. I understand completely what you mean. As another aside, I just wanted to mention that James Morrow was our August interview. And oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, that was kind of fun to find out that yeah. he had commented on your book yeah. as well. Yeah. Yes. So getting back. Jim is a great guy. Yes. I, I totally enjoyed my interview with him yeah. as well. It was very interesting. He, yeah. He's very smart and very funny. He's great. Yeah, very sardonic. And also very multicultural, actually. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes, he is. Yes, yeah. So speaking of multicultural, Venera is, it has a lot of different influences. But mm -hmm. uh, during all the writing about Venera's history, it's described as isolationist, a land of peace and security. And so Venera wants to be left alone by its rapacious neighbors, whether it's the Romans or the Nazis. Even so, even though it's a land of peace and security, it's also a dark place. For example, there is the piece where two abandoned women feast on slivers of flesh from their lover. So how do you reconcile the two? Well, the line about peace and security is, is spoken by one character in the 1500s, mm -hmm. um, a, uh, you know, a Turk expatriate who's now a spy for Venera. Uh, so 
What's important to remember is that Venera dreams as a mosaic, and every character in the book perceives Venera very differently. Some are terrified of it, some are repulsed by it, some are seduced by it, some um, feel a profound empathy for it, and and everybody has a different reaction. Mm -hmm. uh, so. There is no one way of looking at Venera that is the absolute truth. As you said earlier, all the stories about Venera are true and all of them are lies. <laughs> so it, again, part of, the, part of the pleasure of writing a, a mosaic is that you get to write different perspectives. And as in real life, these different perspectives don't necessarily match up because our... Our memories are profoundly unreliable. We never actually remember anything. What we remember are the stories we tell ourselves about our lives. So we're constantly re-narrating to ourselves things that have happened to us. And in these retellings, like in a game of telephone, things change a little bit every time. And once we've retold ourselves a story often enough, it is very different from how it happened in reality and everybody does this so everybody's ideas about an event especially in the past will be completely different and cannot be easily fit together because they're not because that's how memory works and i wanted i wanted venera to be kind of a metaphor for how that works for the fact that no story is ever the real truth, that everything is simply perception. Right. Nothing is fixed in time and place. Uh, right. There are yeah. actually no absolutes and uh, studies. I mean, we're speaking as writers here, but it is true that scientific studies bear this out, that our memories continue to change over time. They're retrieved from areas of our brain that are malleable. That's right. So many of your stories seem to be sly references to pre-existing cinematic and literary works. For example, we have the piece about the international mistress of mystery with her compilation of solved cases. That reminded me a little bit of a deranged Sherlock Holmes. And then the tale of the young Turkish spy that we were just talking about in 15th century China when I was reading that, I saw these visual images from the film Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon by Ang Lee. Uh, I'm sure every reader's reaction is different, but I'd like to hear a bit about the artistic influences at work. Quite certainly, Venera Dreams is, uh, is a collage of many, many, many influences. For Sherlock Holmes, you're absolutely right. That is exactly where, I, that is one of the elements that's fed into uh, the international mistress of mystery. Great. Uh, but, but for um, the super kung fu of this, the secret dragon of imperial power, I actually took that from another source entirely. Because uh, I've never seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, even though I, I actually like Ang Lee quite a lot. But that's one of the, of the films of his that, I haven't seen. Um, so my source for the for uh, for all that all that over the top kung fu is actually 
something altogether different. But almost everything in Venera Dreams will refer to other stories. Again, because Venera is made up of stories, I wanted to make that very explicit. It is really a collage of stories and influences from uh, the Arabian Nights to J.G. Ballard to Tanith Lee to Jack Kirby um, uh, to, uh, uh, to to Salvador Dali. Um, I mean, there's just it just goes on and on and on. Like I could make a list of all the influences, and they'd be almost as long as the book itself. Well, you did used to own a bookstore, so I imagine you do quite a fair <laughs> bit of reading. Well, it's been great talking with you. Uh, in closing, we'd just like to hear a little bit more about what you're working on right now. Sure. Um, as I said, uh, I'm, I work on mosaics most of all. That is, like my, that is the form that I like to work in. And, and I'm currently working on three different ones. Hmm. Um, one is uh, something I'm calling the Superstars Dossier. And what it is is a, is, a, is a collage of found documents, of fictional found documents, that will paint a picture of a superhero universe. And it includes stuff like, uh, uh, like uh, interviews and newspaper articles and blog posts and FAQs and and transcripts and all kinds of, uh, of things like that to, to form kind of a greater picture. Then the next, the, uh, another one that I'm working on is called the problems of Vernon Tevis. And that is, uh, a noir crime series with no fantastical element whatsoever. Um, and it's about a troubleshooter for an international prostitution ring. Mm. Uh, and, um, and his job kind of, takes him a little bit all, all over the world. And, he, you know, he's both a good guy and a bad guy at the same time. Um, and the one that I'm most advanced in, the one that I'm probably going to finish first, something called uh, Chronicles of the Second Global War. And it's an alternate history set in, set in the present day, but the geopolitical map is very different, although the world is peppered with the cities that we know, but the national boundaries are completely different, and, and technology has evolved at a somewhat different pace, uh, and that is fairly advanced. That's probably the next one that I'm going, I'm going to finish. That sounds a little bit like The Man from Hightower, although I bet it's going to be more interesting. <laughs> well, I hope it's going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Gabrielle. It, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today on New Books and Fantasy and Adventure for my interview with Claude Lelumiere, the author of Venera Dreams. You can find out more about him at claudepages.info. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, and I'm the author of the historical fantasy Falcon series, which includes The Falcon Flies Alone and The Falcon Strikes. I blog about travel and other things which inspire me at my website, which is my name spelled out. That's gabriellematthew.com, G A B R I E. L-L-E-M-A-T-H-I-E-U dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter 
I post updates about new podcasts as well as tweet about other topics. And that's at Gabrielle Author. Thanks for joining me and I'll be talking to you in a month.